What's cracking, peeps? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren McDuffie, and I'm known alias as the Fat Man because I help you become perfectly healthy and toned and conscious, of course. Today's episode is an episode that I really enjoyed just simply because I kind of got a chance to go back to my roots. For those of you who have been listening to the show for any length of time, I've shared that I was a former pharmaceutical representative. And today I had the chance to interview Gwen Olson, who is also a former pharmaceutical representative. Gwen is the author of the book Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher. Really good book. If you get a chance, please go to Amazon and pick up the book and you'll learn a lot about antidepressive medications, which a lot of people are on. And a lot of people need to know what they're getting into when they are actually taking these medications. But before we get into the interview, just wanted to give you a few housekeeping things. Last week, we were supposed to be interviewing Shannon Garrett. Shannon is a uh, registered nurse and she helps people with thyroid issues, particularly Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And we were supposed to have that show scheduled last Wednesday and Shannon, due to some unforeseen circumstances, wasn't able to make the show. So hopefully I'll be able to reschedule that with her in August and I will get that on. Now, without further ado, let me read Gwen's bio. Gwen Olson spent 15 years as a sales rep in the pharmaceutical industry working for healthcare giants including Johnson & Johnson, Syntex Labs, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Abbott Laboratories, and Forest Laboratories. As a mental health activist, Gwen has testified before the Food and Drug Administration Psychopharmacology Committee as well as many legislative committees and has led rallies and marches in protests against psychiatric abuse. Gwen's message is a call to action and a plea for each of us to step up and do our part to help create a medical system that serves all and does harm to none. Please enjoy the interview with Gwen Olson. Gwen Olson, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Darren. Thanks for being here. Actually, I'm very excited to have you on. Um, you were one of the first people that I came across as someone who was similar to me uh, when I started out and started talking to people about health and nutrition. Actually, I used one of your video snippets in my very first lecture that I ever did. It was over at a church and you were one of the people that I used. I used one of your um, snippets on a YouTube snippet that I found when you were talking about the pharmaceutical industry and I used that in my very first lecture. So I'm very excited to have you on. But wanted you to tell your story. You and, I, you and I share similar backgrounds. You were an ex-farmer rep. I'm an ex-farmer rep. But um, before that, you had a story. So get into your story and tell how you ended up writing your book, Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher. Okay. Well, um, and as you know, I spent 15 years in the pharmaceutical industry from 1985 until the year 2000. And during that time, because it was a, a lot of mergers and buyouts and and that sort of thing during that time period. I, I worked for a number of large manufacturers. So my experience wasn't just with one company. It was with four to five different companies because I also did some contract work when I was trying to get out. And uh, I was quite successful. I spent most of my career as um, a specialty rep and as a hospital rep. And so I called on some of the, you know, doctors that were a little bit more uh, discerning and had a little bit 
higher educational level, so I had to do a lot of my own uh, individual research and keep up with journals and things of that nature so that I could have intelligent conversations with them. So I really enjoyed what I did and thought I was, you know, helping people in the world, and plus I was making a very nice living doing what I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I had an experience myself where I had been... um, of course, had a lot of stress because, as you know, we have to work long hours and there's a lot of stress during training. And I was one of the people that did a lot of convention work as well. So I had a roommate, my very first uh, roommate in training, that had worked for the company that made Xanax. And so she didn't seem to be as stressed out. and She seemed to be sleeping better than I was. So I asked her what she was doing and she told me, oh, they have this marvelous new product that's, you know, just like a Valium, but it's non-addicting and it's called Xanax. And that's what I'm taking and that's the reason I don't feel as nervous and, and, and I'm sleeping well. And she says, it's fabulous. You ought to ask your doctor for some. So I tried some of her samples that she had while I was in training and God, I loved Xanax because it really took the edge off and it it helped me to sleep at night and so I was excited to find that product and of course I went back home when I got back home and asked my doctor to prescribe it for me and he did. So I took Xanax for about three years and lo and behold I found out I was pregnant and as soon as I found out I was pregnant I decided of course I knew it was a class D teratogenic drug so of course meaning that uh, it could cause birth defects so I decided to just stop taking it and asked my doctor if I could just stop taking it my OBGYN and he said yeah there's no problems you know it's non-addicting so I stopped taking Xanax and I went into a complete psychological meltdown and physical tailspin I mean I couldn't focus I couldn't I couldn't even put a sentence together I couldn't remember what I was saying in the middle of my sentence I had trouble with my equilibrium was off So I I had to go on disability for a while, and then I just quit that company and thought, well, you know, once I got that experience behind me and had my pregnancy and delivered my son, I thought everything was going to be fine, and then I had a severe postpartum depression episode. Now, I'd also had a spinal block with that, so I... I found out much later, put it together, that that anesthesia had caused me an interaction with the Xanax that had been still trapped behind the blood-brain barrier. And, of course, I didn't have this education back then, so I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I just knew that I was having severe problems with depression. So then I went in, and a few years later, I was going through a divorce, and my doctor recommended that I take antidepressants. So I had already set myself up pharmacologically for an adverse event on antidepressants and these drugs are problematic anyway. You can go now and you can find this great body of information on the internet about the SNRIs, SSRIs and all of the adverse events that people have reported but back then in the early 90s I wasn't aware of any of that information and it wasn't out there so I wasn't sure that I was having an adverse reaction. I knew that I had had some symptoms that I had been trained about when I was selling psychiatric drugs, like I had akathisia, which is a really severe internal trembling that, you know, it makes you feel like you're just going to come out of your skin. And I literally would lay in bed in a fetal position and hold myself sometimes because I was shaking so badly. But I was 
aware on some level because of the the psychiatric hospitals that I had called on and the MHMRs and, and, and places of that nature that I needed to keep that information to myself and to not share it with my doctor because I was afraid they were going to put me in a psych ward somewhere. So I went through that whole thing at home alone on disability trying to heal myself and that's kind of when I embarked on this alternative path of healing where I started looking into Ayurvedic medicine and supplements and orthomolecular medicine and you know food whole foods and all of that and really got an education at that point in time about how to heal myself from that process so I got myself back to where at least that I could work and I wanted to get out of the pharmaceutical industry, but um, quite frankly, the amount of money that I was making and the benefits that I had and everything was very difficult for me to find another job that was comparable. And I'm sure you're familiar and, and have had that experience as yes. well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went to a part-time contract position so that I could just, you know, basically just drop off samples and get signatures and that sort of thing. Well, I did that for a little while, and then I just couldn't really tolerate it anymore. I was getting too much of an education. Once you get into the rabbit hole and you start finding out you know, how the dots connect and, and what pharma is really all about, I felt like I just couldn't contribute my energy or anything to that industry anymore. So I went into the natural foods industry and started working for Nature's Way, which is an urban vitamin company. And uh, I got a good education in that, also got um, some experience in, and uh, education in herbology. And I was in the midst of researching a book that I was going to write about the Vioxx uh, scandal that had uh -huh. broken. And I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a great thing to write a book about because here I've got all this experience in pharma and I know how they, you know, they do these things, how the clinical trials are cherry-picked and all this and that. So I thought I had a great, um, a great subject matter that I could write a book about. And while I was doing that, while I was in the process of researching to write that book, I had a niece who was attending Indiana University. She was a pre-med student, and she was in a car accident. And she got addicted to Vicodin, hydrocodone, which is an opioid. And um, she was having difficulty studying. She was trying to pull an all-nighter with some friends. And so she went to a health food store and she purchased some ephedra. And, of course, ephedra is a stimulant. And she didn't know that those things would interact. And she had a drug interaction. And she ended up in a local hospital in, in the emergency room. And they labeled her as having a manic depressive bipolar disorder. Hmm. So... That set her on the road to, you know, taking one medication after another because, as I know now, which I didn't know before this, she was toxic. And, of course, when you're toxic, you're supposed to wash out the body and not have any kind of uh, pharmacologicals introduced into the body until the offending product is, is eliminated. But that's not what they do in real life. In real life, if you have an adverse event, they pull you off of that drug and they put you on another drug. And so she had gone through that process and by the time she was, you know, done, she was on like 14 different pharmaceuticals and she was so toxic and having so many problems that she really wasn't even the same person anymore. She was violent. She was um, unable to work, unable to, to take care of herself and attend school. So she decided one day to take her life and she 
went into the living room and she fashioned a rope with her shoelaces and attached it to the living room ceiling fan and she tried to hang herself but her body weight pulled the fan out of the ceiling and so she wasn't successful so she went into her younger sister's room and took an oil lantern and poured the oil over herself and ignited it and she burned herself alive so it was at that point in time that I knew that I had a moral obligation to speak out and to let people know because I had all this experience under my belt. Not only had I been educated by the pharmaceutical industry, but I had been doing my own self-education and I had also, you know, gotten a huge amount of alternative information. So I knew that I had to, to warn other people because there were problems in the way that people were, you know, being told to take these drugs just for uh, normal emotional states. I mean, like grief, or if you lose a job, it's it's natural for people to get depressed. And it's natural for, you know, you to be sad when you get a divorce or when you lose a family member or an animal that you love or something. And they were starting to medicalize everything. Emotional Emotions were being medicalized. And I knew that these drugs were problematic and that they were going to cause more people to have these problems. Of course, I never dreamed that the number of people that I've since in the last 12 years had interactions with, you know, that have had problems and lost family members and and have just basically lost their health entirely because of these categories of drugs uh, were going to come into my life, but they did eventually. So what happened was the book that I was researching to write about Vioxx and Bextra and some of some of the other you know blockbusters that had been pulled off of the market turned into an autobiography basically about my experience in pharma and about my niece and everything that how those pieces of the puzzle had fallen together for me and that's when I wrote Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher and the rest is history. I've never looked back. I've always just moved forward trying to educate the public as much as I can and and trying to find alternatives for people to pharmaceuticals. Yeah, it seems like your book came out in what, 2000? I want to say what? 2005. 2005. Now I think um, there's an, an MD that's out now, Kelly Brog- Brogdon, I want to say, a Brogdon. Yes. Yeah, and she's kind of now taking the lid off antidepressives as well. But you were kind of like the trailblazer with this whole thing. And now it seems as though more people are following suit and more things are coming to light. Um, with your Xanax and... Um, a lot of people might say, well, why was she on Xanax when she was a pharmaceutical rep? And you mentioned training. Talk to us about how intense training is. I know how intense training was for myself because I know I always felt like I was on stage when I was in training. My training was two weeks and I had played basketball in front of thousands of people. I have an athletic background, but I can't remember how nervous I can remember actually how nervous I was and how emotionally intense that whole experience was for training. And people might be out there saying, well, why does she need Xanax for training? Explain to them how intense training is when you're in pharmaceuticals. Well, you know, it's really interesting, but my husband is was in the Navy. So when he described basic training to me in the Navy, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what we went through in the pharmaceutical industry is where they break you down and they build you back up mm-hmm. with this kind of false bravado that you're going to be out there, you know, healing and saving the world. And so I just remember that it was some of the most intense because I went through 
training with several companies and it was always two to three weeks in the home office where they're putting you off site where you have to have a roommate first of all that you're on top of all all night and all day and then they don't really feed you very well while you're doing this so the nutrition I remember we had juices and things like that and candy bars and things that were available to us in the snack rooms all the times but meals were generally at the company and you, they didn't have all of that well, I would consider nutritional food to offer us. Yes. And so we had to dress up, as you know, do the, the suit and a tie, and you had to look your best, and you were you were gotten up very early in the morning so that you could catch the bus and go into the home office and get through all of the, the um, security that you had to get through in order to get into the building in the first place. And then you're in the fishbowl all day long where you have to not only do medical uh, training and learning about you know the medical aspects of, of the drugs that you're going to sell but also all of your sales training and knee to knees and toe to toes where one rep plays the doctor and the other rep plays the pharmaceutical rep and you have to practice your your um, presentations and you have to be taped on a continual basis they were videotaping us all the time and they pitted us against one another we had to compete with one another in that setting as well as having to learn the information so it was very very stressful I mean you'd come home and you'd all you'd want to do is just collapse on your bed or watch television or something and then you had hours worth of homework or you had to make videotapes at night and so you were up again all hours of the night trying to get prepared for the next day and that goes on for like you said two to three weeks at a time uh -huh. and so it was extremely extremely stressful so I remember each and every time that I came home from one of those training sessions the very first thing I did when I got home and unpacked was make my husband hang that certif the certificate or the certification that I'd gotten from that training on the wall in my office because it was more to me it was more uh, difficult than anything I'd ever done in college yeah I don't think people know how intense that is. And I remember exactly like you said, just coming back to my room and just conking out. <laughs> I wanted to do was sleep and I wanted to be away from my roommate. I wanted to be away from anything that had to do with pharma. Uh, going back to your niece and, you know, what she went through. Obviously, she was she was on 14 different drugs, but she was on these antidepressives. Um and later on in going through your book, it was discovered that one of the side effects to being on these antidepressant medications was suicide. Um, do you think that she knew what she was doing at the time or was that a was what she did, the suicide that she committed? Was that a sole side effect of the antidepressants that she was on? I believe that she did not know that she was going to take her own life. I believe it was spontaneous because she did not uh, leave a suicide note. And she was actually was in a position where she was going to have to go back on the drugs. And it, I think she was terrified because she had told me that, you know, she'd had out-of-body experiences. And the way she described it to me is she says, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm outside my body looking at myself and, and, you know, I don't have any control over what I'm doing. So I knew that I had had that same experience when I was on antidepressants. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe 
maybe this is an adverse drug event that she's having. So I was trying to convince family members and trying to do research around it and figure out, you know, what to do after she'd already taken herself off of the drugs cold turkey. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of people have the most severe side effects or uh, adverse events is when they cold turkey off of the drugs because the way that the drugs are designed they block serotonin reuptake so you get uh, all of a sudden you know you have these pathways that are blocked and you no longer have the drug circulating in your body and so it takes the brain a period of time through proper nutrition and detoxification to heal itself and she just didn't have that advantage she didn't you know give herself the time to do that and so I attribute it to the drug withdrawal more so than you know the drug adverse event it was the drug withdrawal going into really what she might have been going through and also there was some things that were pretty much swirling around your family at the time one of the things that i see a lot is that people tend to be guided towards using prescription medications out of insur insurance. Uh, in my estimation, and this is just my opinion, and I want to get your opinion on it, um, sometimes insurance is helpful and sometimes insurance is a double-edged sword. Do you feel as though we are, because we have this insurance, we pay for this at work, and when we have some type of ailment, we go to the traditional medical system, do you feel like that's something that we're doing is being done to us purposely to guide us into using or keeping into these traditional medications or pharmaceutical drugs. I most definitely do because, as you know, uh, alternatives like even you may be able to get a chiropractic adjustment ten times a year. They may cover that under insurance, but anything like acupuncture or orthomolecular medicine, where you take supplementation of different, you know, amino acids or things that you might need, um, or even other energy healers or things of that nature, none of that's covered by insurance. So all of that has to come out of pocket. So most people don't even entertain those things because they can go to the doctor and they can get this, you know, covered and their prescriptions are covered or this or that. I absolutely believe it's another pathway of profiteering. I mean, that it's just that it's kind of like herding the cattle, you know, in through the gate to go the way that you want them to go in order to eat what you want them to eat or to feed on what you want them to, to be fed. So um, I, I absolutely believe that's that's part of the agenda and you know it's a very lucrative it's a, a lucrative agenda because most people don't even question they don't question the knowledge of their physicians and you and I both know that uh, there's different levels of doctors we've talked about this before the the show you know yes. is that there are there's your doctors that are brilliant and then there's your doctors that really just are barely making it through medical school and they don't have any kind of knowledge outside of what they were taught you know, from pharma or by pharma or funded by pharma and they don't do any of their own due diligence or their own research and so they really don't have that vast amount of information and knowledge base that we would want 
a medical provider to have for the most part. There are the exceptions to the rule, and I believe there are more of them coming along now. I think a lot of doctors have realized they have to be more educated because their patients are taking things that they're not familiar with, and they're getting more exposure to things. But for the most part, I think that they're very well indoctrinated by pharma, and that starts very early on in their careers, as you know, when they're in medical school. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we used to get them when they were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We'd go to the <laughs> medical schools and the interns come in. We had the donuts and we had all of our, you know, little pads and pencils and things to, to give out to kind of indoctrinate them into the pharmaceutical world. Uh, I didn't want to do this interview and make it seem like your niece was... Because sometimes I think when we look at people who might have a mental illness or might be depressed, we look at these people as kind of off the rocker or what I would call crazy. And your niece had gone through some things. You mentioned in the book that she was molested at a very early age and then there wasn't a really good family life. Um, kind of paint the picture for us, because I think, again, when we look at people who are having what we call emotional problems, we tend to write them off as crazy. And we don't really look at what's kind of evolved with them to kind of get them to that point. You mentioned that you went through postpartum depression. Um, you mentioned that there were some things going on in your life. You had a divorce and um, kind of paint the picture for us with your your niece and, and what actually uh, kind of set the stage for her to be more involved with these types of drugs? Well, she had actually had a lot of psychological trauma as a child. As She had not only been molested by one person, she'd been molested by a caretaker, um, and she had also been molested by... Um, one of her mother's boyfriends and she had just been she'd moved from school to school um, because you know my my sister had moved a lot and it was um, just it was just a lack of stability in her life for many many years but she was extremely intelligent and she was a beautiful girl I mean she was absolutely beautiful inside and out but she just never re really felt like she fit in anywhere and she felt dirty she used to tell me she felt dirty because she'd never had any um, counseling or you know had hadn't really dealt with the psychological trauma of her molestation when she was very small I mean she was three years old the first time it happened I believe ten the second time that it happened and so she um, she really never never got past any of that and I think that that's possibly what was the underlying cause of the depression but then again she had an opioid addiction to Vicodin which also can cause depressive episodes so it's really difficult to say that it was one thing and not the other I believe it was probably a combination of things you know and then she was in college and as we know when we're in college we eat poorly so she wasn't probably getting good nutrition at that time. And so I don't think her body or her mind was able to deal with the things that she was going through. But she was not a mentally defective person. And that was part of my goal in writing the book that I wrote. When I first sat down to start writing the book, it was supposed to be an email to my family members that I was going to send out prior to the funeral. I just wanted them to know what I'd discovered in my research because while I was researching for the Vioxx book, of course, I'd run across some of the information about the antidepressants. Not a lot, but some of the information that was out there. And so 
I began investigating that further, and um, I had basically wanted to inform my family members that, you know, she wasn't crazy, she wasn't a defective, mentally defective person, that she had been caught in this web, which is cast, you know, out for larger patient populations because the industry always needs to have expanded markets, and that she had gotten caught up in this web and that it was a combination of all of these things. And as I started to write, it, the information just kind of fell into place. Books fell off of shelves. Uh, people handed me things. People called me and told me things. I mean, it just became a process where it unfolded and the book was born. And then, you know, I self-published because I didn't want to be censored. And and that's basically how the whole thing evolved. And, of course, I, I really have tried to move away from it being so much about always about my personal family life and about my niece and everything. But that was the impetus for the work. And it really is the story that, that touches hearts because we all have somebody or know somebody that has gone through this now. It's become such an epidemic of such large proportions that now this is what really most people can relate to and so I still am talking about it 12 years later even though you know it's not the focus of what I do now it's it was in memory of Meg that I wrote the book and why I do this work do you think things would have turned out differently if um, she hadn't gone to let's say um, some counseling and uh, more so in a roundabout way do you think um when people are depressed, is it more helpful for them to go to counseling before going in to see a uh, medical doctor? Is it more helpful for them to obviously learn how to process and maybe deal with their emotions? I know that's a, a, a large question there, but <laughs> if you yeah, can. And it is because, you know, I think it's in de it's dependent on the individual. Some people can't open up and talk, you know, and talk therapy may be not the thing for them. But I do believe personally that anybody who has any kind of psychological trauma is better served to go and try to talk to another person about it. If you don't have a good family friend or a parent or, or, or somebody else that you feel like that you can just have a heart to heart with, I think it's important that people that they relate and that they have nurturing relationships, you know, with other people. And if you don't have those and you add pharmaceuticals to the mix, particularly antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents, antipsychotics, whatever, that those things just tend to muddy the waters. They don't really do anything but suppress the emotions. And then when a person does have an adverse event, they can't deal with it because they don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the, the psychological stability to deal with it. And um, I think that's what that's what happened to my niece. And I think that happens to a lot of people. But if you're asking me, would I recommend people go to talk therapy before taking drugs? I don't recommend that people take drugs for these problems to begin with. I think they should be reserved for the most severe states of psychosis or, or, you know, suicidal depressive states. And then I believe they should only be short term and never used intermittently because that really sets you up for problems. So, you know, my education has come a long way in the last 12 years. And I, when it comes to psychiatric drugging, I'm totally against it unless it's just the most severe situations where people have tried every other alternative. And when it comes to children, 
I'm most definitely against it because, as you know, children are three times as likely to have adverse events as adults are. And because they have developing kidneys and livers and brains and, you know, all of that, they're they're at a much greater risk than your uh, adults are. So when it comes to drugging kids with psychiatric drugs, I'm totally against that. I believe they should do everything possible besides drugging a child because with a child they don't get to say no. They don't they don't have the ability or to articulate many times what's happening to them, how they feel, and then they have their caretakers that are forcing them to take their drugs. Their doctors force them to take them, their teachers, their you know, mom and dads, everybody is forcing them to take drugs and that's why they're such a lucrative patient for pharma because they're compliant patients and with psych drugs when I sold psych drugs the biggest problem we had was compliance patient compliance was like horrible because people started to realize they felt worse on the drugs than better and I'm it, it brings to mind I don't know you remember the old movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest yep I remember that well <laughs> Where all the patients are tonguing their medication or they're hiding them and putting them under their blankets and whatever. I always wondered to myself, well, if these drugs made them normal, why would they not want to take their drugs? But what I think it is, is they're actually, they start to identify at some point that the drugs make them feel crazier. And so that's the reason why they don't want to take their drugs. Yeah. Um, Your niece was on 14 different drugs. And one was a result of a car accident, which she got on Vicodin for a car accident. One of the things I felt like was very appalling to me um, from reading the book was that you have her on 14 different drugs and none of the doctors seem to be on the same page and know anything about the drug interactions and all the things that could have happened to her, which obviously did ultimately happen. Why was there not any communication there? And I, I mean, in my career, I've seen this myself. <laughs> and um, why wasn't their communication there to say, hey, she's on Vicodin, she's on this SSRI, she's on all of these different medications. It just seems like there was some type of communication breakdown or maybe no one really cared about letting her know all the adverse events that could happen to these happen when she was uh taking these different medications? Well, that's a good question, Darren. And, I, you know, I'm 57 years old, so I do have some perspective from before when there were so many specialists that took care of everything, where now you pretty much go, if you have a stomach problem, you go to a gastroenterologist. If you have, you know, an orthopedic problem, you go to an orthopedist. If you have a gynecological problem, you go to an OBGYN. It's like all these different specialty groups for different things. Whereas when I was growing up, we had one family doctor and the family doctor took care of everything. So the family doctor was the, the gatekeeper. He knew what drugs that you were on. He knew what your lifestyle was like. He knew how you ate and what foods might, you know, that you consumed that might interact with drugs and, and things like that. Well, they don't have that not that many people see strictly a family doctor anymore. Maybe in some rural areas they do, but for the most part, I see it as one hand not knowing what the other hand's doing, you know. It's the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing, and then if you don't use one pharmacy or one pharmacist 
to advise you. Then you're going to Rite Aid to fill one prescription and Walgreens to fill another and, you know, whatever. And, and so there's really no communication between these entities as to what's going on with an individual patient. And I think that's what puts people at, at high risk is because they don't have the, the appropriate communication and then the other thing is the doctors themselves lack this information Mm -hmm. because as you know they don't do clinical trials with multiple drugs they don't you know see drug interactions in clinical trials because they're usually one specific patient population with one disease state that they're using one pharmaceutical on and that's not the real world scenario I mean people are are not only are they taking multiple drugs that are prescription drugs these days they're taking over-the-counter drugs they're taking supplements they're you know eating foods that can interact there's all of these things that can contribute to uh, an adverse drug event and no one's identifying the individual pieces. So that's what I, I see as being the biggest problem. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you there. And also um, what I've seen with a lot of people, because I used to stand in the pharmacy and watch people uh, come up to, to, to take to get their drugs and whatnot. And what I saw was people wouldn't rarely ever, they always put like a little package insert for you to read about adverse events. And I used to see patients rarely ever read that package insert. And most of the patients never really ask their doctor about the adverse events. And I, you see a lot in the elderly population where they have these adverse events because most of the time elderly are on numerous amount of medications. And anytime you are on those different medications, the uh, propensity for having an adverse uh, event actually heightens because you're on so many different medications. So I always tell people, hey, make sure that, you know, you know what you're taking. And if you have an elderly parent or some someone of that nature, look over their stuff, because if they're on 12, 13 different medications, something's going to not mix right at some point or another, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, I I go a step further and I tell people that our caretakers for elderly people that they should have right alongside of the medications that they have in their medicine cabinet, they should have a list of the various drugs that that person is taking, what their dosages are and how frequently they take them so that in case they end up in an emergency room, you know, God forbid there's something happens and they have to get them and take them to the ER, that they can grab that list and they can take it with them and give it to the attending physician in the ER because a lot of people also get, you know, really seriously harmed in the ER because they have no idea what's on board when that that patient comes in and so it's a good way you know good rule of thumb if you are someone that's taking care of an elderly person to have a list of their medications not only the the brand name but the generic name so that you know you can give that and pass that information on and another thing you know you mentioned that people don't read package inserts I've never seen a person accept the counseling that's offered by the pharmacist when they go to pick up their prescriptions either I have sat hours before and watched you know waiting to get in to talk to a pharmacist or something and watch people decline getting the counseling that the pharmacist offers and they're probably the best educated of everyone beyond the doctor about what you can expect with side effect profiles. I mean, you know, most people don't even bother to take the time to listen. Yeah, it's just because I think most people think that because it's being sold, it's safe. We have this thing where we think everything is safe for us because 
it's being sold to us. And uh, I think, you know, people need to kind of get out of that. I think it's getting better now. More and more people are starting to question things, but you still have people out there. I live in South Florida and we have a large elderly population. And for the younger generation that's here now, I think with the use of the internet and all of these other things, we have the ability to go in and talk to a doctor on a different level and say, hey, you know, I saw this on the internet, but you still have this older elderly population that's here that the doctor is a god. And whatever the doctor says, then that's what they do. Um, going into your book, there was a moment I had and I wanted to share it with you where you went in, you were on anti uh, antidepressives and you went in and you told the doctor you were having side effects and the doctor told you to double the dose and i was like no gwen don't do that don't <laughs> i'm like why and then you said you double the dose tell us why you actually doubled the dose i doubled the dose because i was a good patient yeah. i was being a compliant patient even though i knew better I mean, I knew I was having an adverse event. I mean, I had already been trained in this. This I sold haloperidol, which is an older antipsychotic drug. And I was having side effects that were in the Haldol package insert. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm having akathisia. And the doctor says, no, this is an agitated, depressive episode. You did, The drug just hasn't kicked in yet. You need to double the dose. And against all common sense and logic, I did it. So, you know, I know why people do things because they hand their power over to authority figures. I used to be one of those people. I used to think, well, that guy has an MD or he has letters behind his name. That makes him smarter than me. That makes him more knowledgeable than I am. And now I realize that, and I will never, ever do it again. I will never hand my power over to anyone like that. That I am the best authority about my own body and what my body is experiencing and that I need to be my own advocate and to, you know, to be proactive about things. And that's why I'm trying not only just to alert people to the problems, but I'm also trying to teach people to be self-empowered with their health care because it ultimately is your body temple and you're the one who's responsible to take care of it. So I did it because I was a good patient. That's why I did it. There's a lot of people out there. I used to be like that, too. <laughs> Just do whatever they told me to do. And, you know, it's so funny because with when we talk about people, what I've learned about people is that most of us don't like to be told what to do. But when we, for some reason, when we get into in a doctor's office and the doctor tells us to do something, we just turn into zombies and do whatever the doctor tells us to do. It's, it's just the funniest thing in the world. We're programmed um, to do that. Think about all the commercials that you see yeah. on television. Do they tell you to think about this yourself and use your own personal discernment? No, they tell you ask your doctor. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and people just go the authority and they comply and they do it. Um, talking about different medications, and you mentioned people are taking supplements, over the counter drugs, and they're taking pharmaceutical drugs. One of the big things that I learned in the pharmaceutical industry, and I wanted you to kind of expand on this, is uh, about the liver and um, what we call, and I know people get all crazy when you start using big terms, but I'm going to use one, cytochrome P450, which is, you know, in the liver and it filters things out, especially the medications. Talk about what happens when you are on several different medications and how that can kind of, I, I call it toxic buildup. But yeah. How, how does that happen and, and give us a, a, a real brief education on 
the P450 system and, and the liver in general? Well, the cytochrome P450 is an enzyme system, and so what it does is it metabolizes the things that you consume, and many of the pharmaceuticals, probably close to 70, 75% of the pharmaceuticals will be metabolized by that particular enzyme system. But then there are also a number of foods and supplements and things that are also metabolized by the cytochrome P450. So what you have occurring is when you're taking numerous pharmaceuticals and eating foods that are all, you know, being metabolized by this this enzyme system, they have a synergistic effect. Sometimes they cancel one another out or sometimes they magnify the you know, the results of, of the drugs that you're taking. And so it's um it's really kind of a difficult um, it's a difficult thing to discern whether or not you're going to have problems because you're not really aware of what different foods and, and different things that you're, you're consuming are going to do and how they're going to interact with the pharmaceuticals that you're taking. So the cytochrome P450 is something that I often tell people that they, if they have a lot of adverse drug events, that they should have that tested, do the liver testing for that to see if they are one of the 10% of the population that have a defective P450 system because I actually had that test a few years ago and found that I was and that was one of the reasons that I had had so many adverse drug events in my life because I wasn't aware of that. So um, there is about 10% of the population and it is a genetic thing. So I don't know that my niece might have not also had the same problem. Yeah, is, is mental illness genetic? Or is that something that we have been taught to believe? I have a, a family member that I just saw maybe two weeks ago, and she's had some some issues. But as far as when I look around the whole of my family, there's nothing there. But we have one person in our family who has um, some issues with, uh, you know, depression and some, well, some other issues. But you know, that's a loaded question, Darren. It really is because uh, I, I'm going to get a lot of I'm going to see my email increase and thank you very much <laughs> for the next week after this thing comes out but in my opinion and based on my research I do not see that what we term as a lot of things that are mental illness as being genetic I think we can have a predisposition based on our genetics to different types of illness and ailments but I also think it's largely environmental so you can take, you know, people like the twin studies. A lot of people will point to that. Well, if you go and do your research on that, you'll find that a lot of that was um, false information and that it wasn't presented properly. And, and we could probably get into a whole lengthy discussion about clinical trials and how those are conducted and research and how many people that, you know, do their own, write their own papers and, and all that sort of thing. But I do not believe that it's, as largely genetic as it is to being environmental. But I do believe that, you know, families tend to do the same sorts of things. They tend to eat the same. They tend to have the same kind of, you know, upbringing and, and that sort of thing. So once someone in a family is diagnosed with a mental illness and it goes into their record, then that becomes a red flag for future family members that show up and have depressive episodes or anxiety or, or any kind of, of quote unquote mental disorders. I'm not into labeling anymore and I don't have a lot of credence in the mental health care system. So I'm a loaded 
that's a loaded question for me. <laughs> yeah, you, you handle it well. Um, <laughs> getting into um, recently, your book, kind of, and there was something in your book that I wasn't really aware of, and it happened in my home state of South Carolina. I haven't. It happened in 2005, which was the year my mom passed away, and I don't even. I didn't know that it happened, but it was the Pittman case. Um, there was something that happened in South Carolina maybe a year or so ago where a young man went into a church and shot some some family members. And you're starting to see these things uh, across the United States. I think um, two, three years ago, there was a guy who went in, a Batman, uh, premiere of the Batman uh, movie and shot some people. I wanted to ask you, are these depression medications, antipsychotics, or you know whatever you want to call them, are these always at the heart of these what we would call uh, fatal events that we're seeing, where people are? Because to me, I don't think a human being in their I want to say right mind is going to go in and want to harm other human beings. Um, how many of these episodes that we're seeing are a result of people being on these types of medications? Well, you know, I've done a lot of research around the school shootings and, you know, I just touched the tip of the iceberg in my book because it was written in 2005, but you can go back and, and you can look at, at 99% of the school shootings that have taken place. It doesn't always come out in the initial reports about, you know, the shooting, but it, it comes out down the road if you follow the trail long enough and you continue to hang with it that these people were on psychiatric drugs. Mm -hmm. And m many times they try to play it off as though, well, this person had mental health issues and it's always blamed on the patient, never on the treatment. And so you have to dig further and go to find out that, Many times they have stopped taking their drugs. Again, there's a lot of risk involved with people that discontinue the products. Let me back up and just say there's a lot of risk involved in taking psychiatric drugs, period. When you yeah. initially start the drugs, if they change the dosage of the drugs, and if you discontinue the drugs. So that's a lot of risk. And what you find is that people are taking them intermittently or they have discontinued the drug, cold turkey, or they have been doing the same thing that, you know, I experienced and my niece experienced where they're, they're taking the patient off of one drug and onto another and off of one drug and onto another, which they all work in different um, pathways. So, you know, they can potentially, they, they cause problems when they interact and you haven't like I said, washed out from the previous drug. So yes, 99% of the time, if you follow the, the thread long enough, you will see that these people were on psychiatric drugs. And some of them are even in, uh, I mean, I hate to go there, but in mind control programs, you, you, you brought up the guy that was the Batman shooter. So if you want to do some really interesting research in the rabbit hole, go, go look at that a little bit closer and you'll see that, that he was actually uh, involved in some, some psychological mind control programs. Yeah, I think the young man that did the uh, shooting in my hometown of South Carolina was on um, something called uh, sub Suboxone, I want to say is, is what it's called. Yes. Yep. So I, I stayed with it because I'm always interested to see because to me, no one goes in and shoots up, shoots nine people just on a whim because they're upset or mad about something. Um, there has to be something that's underlying 
you know, going right. on. Back and look at the clinical initial clinical trials on all of these categories of drugs, Darren. You'll find that they had homicidal ideation, mm-hmm. and they had suicidal ideation, and many times it they just don't report that. They did not report it. So it, it is something that pharma was well aware of when these drugs came out that they were going to be problematic in this regard. And there's an excellent psychopharmacologist out of England, Dr. David Healy, that he's written about this quite a bit. And so, you know, if you want to delve into that a little bit further, he did his own he did his own uh, clinical trial using his staff and people that were that were in um, his hospital environment that didn't have any kind of mental issues or depression or anything. And several of his patients went off the rails and a couple became homicidal and suicidal as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned clinical trials and all of this, this other stuff. How corrupt is the industry? I think the industry is extremely corrupt, unfortunately. And having spent so much of my time and energy in that industry, um, that's really what I'm trying to do now is is trying to reverse the karma that I accumulated because I had no idea. I had no idea how corrupt that the industry was when I was actually in it. It took getting out and being able to see it from a different perspective and also, like I said, doing my own self-education before I really saw how much money was changing hands and how much was being kept from the public and that there was no informed consent. You have to have all the information to give your informed consent. And pharma, they, they cherry pick what kind of information is going to be released. And their clinical studies, they cherry pick the patients for those. And I believe it's all a very huge collusive effort. And unfortunately, you know, we were a part of it. But now we're trying to do something to, to let other people know. Yeah. And uh, last question for you, and I felt like this was was really important. Um, in the book, it mentions uh, neurologically driven agitation. Um, why do we need to know about that, and why is it so uh, dangerous? Because those are animal impulses, and when you have neurologically driven agitation, that's what drives people to commit suicide and commit crimes. Like, you know, think about this. Before people were on all of these drugs, when when I was younger, I used to hear about people that would commit suicide, and when they would commit suicide, they would, you know, maybe slit their wrist and slide into a warm tub of water, or they would go in the garage and hook up, you know, the exhaust and and go to sleep in the in the car, or they would do something of that nature. Now. All of a sudden, when people commit suicide, you hear about them. Not only do they kill themselves, but they drown five children and they shoot the dog or they go in and they shoot up, you know, seven family members and then they kill themselves or whatever. And this is neurologically driven agitation that causes a lot of this kind of violence. And that's the thing that I think really, if you if you look at the history of suicide and how people used to commit suicide and now how people commit suicide. I mean, my God, by hanging yourself or burning yourself alive, that's just, that was almost unheard of. And that's the reason because people are just completely out of their minds and they're so agitated that they want to, they take other people with them. And they, many times, the people that survive this claim they have no memory whatsoever of this. It's like they're just acting out of impulse, out out of animalistic impulse. Yeah. And I said last question, but this just came to mind. So I'm I'm going to ask it and then we'll end end the interview. But um, 
it seems to me that you know you have these shootings and you have these things that are going on and most oftentimes they occur in the male population but it all it really seems to me that women are unfairly targeted um, because women for lack of a better word are more emotional women tend to feel things more emotionally you know you mentioned you went through a divorce um, and there are other life events that may throw us for a, a loop so to speak but it seems that women are again unfairly targeted and you're a woman so if you went through this stuff what would you tell a woman who's out there right now who might have gone through a divorce a bad breakup or something like that how are they to deal with this versus going to a doctor and the doctor say hey let me put you on Paxil or uh, Zoloft or, or any other the medications that are out there what's the best way for them to deal with these these life events well, you know, I think a lot of these things are also, with, in the case of women, hormonally driven. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that I would do is say go get a, a profile, a hormonal profile done and, and find out if your hormones are balanced or not. And, you know, women are on, they when they're younger, they're on birth contraception, birth control pills. When they get older, some people will be on, you know, bioidentical hormones or other hormones or, you know, I think it's really important to look at the hormonal issue, also to look at the dietary issues because if you're only consuming refined carbohydrates and sugars and, you know, aspartame sodas and things of that nature, those are going to also cause problems, uh, physical problems that relate to how they affect your hormones. So I think that's really important. But then more than that, again, I think it's nurturing relationships. Women need community. And men are socialized to where that, you know, they're team players and they have their friends that they go out and have beers with or they play ball with or they do something and they can talk one-on-one. -on -one. Women are raised to be competitive with one another. One another. And I think probably the most wonderful thing that I experienced was when I turned 40 I actually started to have women friends prior to that it was always you know you can only have one beauty queen you can only one one girl you know I'm just saying mm -hmm, mm -hmm. women are always raised to be competitive with one another and so they don't really have the nurturing bonds with other women and I'm trying to break that mold and say don't wait until you're 40 like I did to make really close relationships with other women and talk to your your, your female friends and find find a shoulder to cry on because sometimes that's all we need is we need a little nurturing and men tend to want to fix things they you know men feel like when we go to them with our problems sometimes that they're really put out because they don't want to just hear about it they want to fix it for us and we don't always need things fixed for us but we always need someone to empathize with us and to hear our stories and so that's what I try to encourage women to do find other communities of women so so that you can not feel alone. Yeah, very well said. Uh, Gwen Olson, it's been a pleasure interviewing you. And your book is called Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher. Older book, but for those of you who want to know more about the antidepressant, it's very well written and it has a ton of information in there. I would encourage you to go to Amazon and pick it up. So again, Gwen Olson, thank you for the interview today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Darren. And I'd also like to tell people that I'm on Facebook and I do have a website, GwenOlson.com. <clears throat> I do health coaching. And for anybody who might be interested in contacting me personally, I'd be happy to hear from them. 
Yep. Thank you for your shameless plug because I surely forgot to <laughs> ask you about it <laughs> because the no. interview was so in-depth. I was just sitting here just thinking about the interview. But again, GwenOlson.com. And if you're interested in doing some health coaching um, with her, I would encourage you to uh, reach out because just talking uh, with her before we actually um, began the interview, uh, Gwen knows her stuff and she's been down that road and she can kind of help you out. So again, Gwen, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Darren.